Hey everyone, welcome to the Capital City Bourbon Show. We're thrilled to be here with you all today, so grab yourself a glass of whiskey and come join us on the porch. Welcome back out to the porch, everyone, and and happy day. Uh, I was going to say happy Friday, but then it occurred to me it's not even Friday. Uh, I don't know if that's any indication of how my week has been going, or maybe that's an indication we should drink a little less before we start doing this, John. (laughs) Let's roll. Yeah. (laughs) We don't have time to figure that out right now. We got too much important stuff happening on the porch today. And it is certainly a happy day on the porch because... What a guest today, John. I mean, this is what I've been looking forward to for such a long time. Both of us, yeah. Um, and, you know, with in the world of COVID and, and busy schedules, it's it's hard to get together. But we, we were finally able to get this uh, visit worked out. And we are so happy because our guest today is just a titan in the industry. Um, his reputation precedes him it, because he has just done so much in his career. He has uh, spent his career making some of the finest quality whiskey you can find. He is part of the reason that modern bourbon connoisseurs have whiskey available and quality whiskey available to the extent that we do. Um, He's done so much that we are grateful for, and we're uh, excited to hear some stories from him today. And and we're going to learn more about his current venture, which is just a phenomenal brand, tons of great products. And we're going to taste some, maybe some more limited, harder to find releases that are just wonderful. And and we're going to hear all about these products and how they were made. But without further ado, we're so excited to introduce our guest today, the one and only Greg Metz. Greg, it is an absolute honor and pleasure to sit down with you today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me along. I've been looking forward to this for uh, several weeks, uh, you know, since we finally got it scheduled and uh, definitely looking forward to having uh, a good time, some nice chats, and uh, a couple good sips along the way. So, yeah, uh, you know, my uh, my my motto is to make this all about you guys and your show. So, uh, any and all questions are invited, and I'll do my uh, absolute best to answer any and all of them. So, fire fire at will. Well, you go back quite a ways, and uh, and for, for quite a while. You were making uh, whiskey for a lot of other brands and weren't making your own at all. Is is that right? Back in the day, yeah, that's uh, that's correct. It's been uh, it's been uh, quite a journey for me from uh, the beginning to end. Well, it's not even the end. I'm I'm still at it. But uh, so I'll be I'll be starting my 44th year in the business this coming June. But uh, you know the the long story short is you know I really started. Uh, my career in, in this business in 1978 and uh, really had no idea what I was getting into when I got started. Uh, frankly, I didn't even know what a master distiller was. Uh, and, you know, for the most part, uh, you know, my start in the business was really just pure dumb luck. Uh, in 1978, I was graduating uh, from the University of Cincinnati with a chemical engineering degree. And actually back then, folks came to campus to recruit for open positions that they had at their facilities. And as it was, uh, Seagram's was there uh, looking to fill uh, openings that they had at the Lawrenceburg, Indiana distillery. So uh, I had gone through that 
uh, interview process and was lucky enough to have been offered a job. Uh, you know, and the rest has really become history. But uh, frankly speaking, uh, the only thing I knew at the time was that I was 23 and I was going to go work for a company that made whiskey. And I thought, I mean, that's, that's pretty damn cool. That could be all that. <laughs> and the fact of the matter is that, you know, almost 44 years later, it's, it's still uh, an incredible business and a lot of fun. And it's still uh, very much pretty damn cool. So, uh, you know, the part that I, I really uh, wasn't aware of when I joined, I joined uh, Seagram's uh, is, is who I worked for for 24 years. And over my career, I went through uh, four ownership changes at that uh, Lawrenceburg, Indiana facility. But uh, I didn't know when I joined uh, uh, the Seagram company that I was actually going to get the best training in the world yeah. relative to becoming a master distiller. So, uh, you know, their training program was <clears throat> was an ongoing program. It had it had no limits and no timelines. It, it lasted as long as as you worked for the Seagram company. And for me, I was fortunate to have been part of that for uh, 24 years. Uh, as you know, in 2020 or 2002, I'm sorry, uh, Seagram's elected to get out of the business altogether. Mm-hmm. And, and then uh, that started the uh, little bit of a, a chain of, of uh, transition and acquisitions from uh, Seagram to print over car to Lawrenceburg Distillers, Indiana, and then ultimately to uh, MGP. So uh, I was part of all those uh, ownership changes over the 38 years that I spent at that distillery. And you were distilling and, uh, bourbons uh, and, and, and rise throughout that entire time? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really, I guess, intriguing, really. It's, uh, you know, under the Seagram umbrella, that facility, Lawrenceburg, Indiana facility, was literally built to produce seven crown and all of the bourbon whiskeys and rye whiskeys that we made famous going forward were really all those staple mash bills that were part of either the seven crown blend or crown Royal, which we contributed to or some of the other bourbon brands that they had uh, back in the day. So, uh, you know, as, as we migrated from Seagram's, which was, uh, you know, 0% contract distilling. We were specifically built to produce uh, products for the Seagram brands. Uh, in 2002, like I said, they got out of the business entirely. And at that point, it's when we started becoming uh, a contract distiller. Uh, in 2002, Pernod Car and Diageo uh, jointly purchased all the Seagram brands uh, as a result of the uh, acquisition Pernover Car wound up with ownership of the facility. <clears throat> so we were producing all the Diageo products uh, on a contract basis and then producing all the Pernod products that they acquired, uh, you know, under their ownership. Uh, Pernod held on to the facility till about 2008, at which time they really acquired another company, uh, in the business, I can't remember offhand. I always want to say Constellation, but I don't think that's right. But, but in any case, they wound up with, uh, through that acquisition, wound up with two distilleries and two bottling houses and really only had capacity uh, to utilize one of each. So uh, we went through a study. Uh, Lawrenceburg uh, came out on the 
the bottom end of that study, uh, we were put up for for sale uh, again in 2008, at which time uh, we were purchased by uh, a rich gentleman from uh, Trinidad, Lawrence Dupre. Uh, And at that point, when that acquisition took place, uh, is when we became uh, 100% contract distillers. We had lost all brand affiliation uh, with uh, any of the products that we had produced prior under the Seagram umbrella or Pernod and Diageo. And, uh, you know, as as it was, that that was really, as a time frame went, that, that wound up being sort of the beginning of the craft uh, boom, if you will. And, and we aggressively, aggressively pursued uh, third-party contract sales as a 100% contract distiller uh, from that period of uh, 2008 to 2012-13 uh, uh, under the LDI uh, leadership. And then uh, uh, as a result of... <clears throat> The economic downturn, uh, Lawrence Dupre uh, got in some economic difficulties. Government, uh, Trinidad government wound up taking control of, of his companies uh, and, and as such uh, sold uh, LDI because we were profitable. And, uh, and that's when MGP uh, stepped in and they, they continue to this day to be, you know, primarily 100 percent contract distillers. So. Uh, you know, from, from start to finish in my career down there, it was quite an evolution of of uh, events that, uh, you know, took us from, uh, you know, 100% Seagram brands to 100% contract distilling over, uh, really over the course of a, a 12 or 12, 2002, 2016, about, about a 14-year period under, you know, under, under my uh realm there but so yeah it, it was uh, really interesting we we really had to uh, do a lot of innovative things there at the distillery because we had to repurpose uh, a lot of the equipment to do things that it wasn't originally designed for uh, you know I developed a lot of uh, of really custom distilling techniques so that we could utilize the equipment we had to to wind up producing, you know, what I considered world-class uh, bourbon whiskey. So, uh, you know, it was on one hand, it was really challenging and um, a lot of days it was really hard and difficult, but at the, but the end of every day, uh, you know, when I walked out of that distillery, uh, I knew that I was producing uh, world-class whiskeys for, uh, you know, many, many brands. And I took a lot of gratification in that, I, you know, as, Time moved on, and you know, I I became more popular and more well known as as a result of what we've been doing down at that distillery for a long time. But uh, you know, I will tell you, it's a lot of fun, and I enjoy it. But uh, it's not something that I really needed. Uh, it's you know, the way I'm wired is is that I just take gratification out of accomplishing something good every day. And uh, you know, every day that I left that distillery. Uh, I felt good about what we were doing for a lot of the brands out there really, you know, under the radar, if you will. Yeah. Short dogs running in tall grass. Yeah. <laughs> so no, it, it was, uh, it was very rewarding uh, in many, many ways. And, and, you know, uh, you know, we've obviously touched a lot of souls over the years with the products that we've uh, produced out of that facility. So. 
It's good stuff. During that course of all of that time, did you have some other distillers come through your organization there that went on to, uh, uh, to, to, to work in their own distilleries and things of that nature? Well, it's, uh, it's interesting. The, uh, you know, when I said earlier that I got the best training in the world from Seagram's, uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the Kentucky distilleries really uh, uh, did their level best to scoop up uh, yeah. any prior Seagram uh, employees uh, as a result of that training. So, you know, uh, you know, I worked uh, uh, very closely with uh, um, you know a lot of folks that that wound up moving on to do uh, other things outside of uh, you know. Uh, Seagram family, if you will. I mean, uh, Jim Rutledge, I worked with him quite a bit. He, he did, uh, he, he came, I think, uh, from New York and he came to the Lawrenceburg plant for a period of time where he started training to be uh, become ultimately the master distiller for roses. So, you know, that's just one example of uh, folks that, that sort of went through, I mean, it yeah, he he went from Seagram's to Karen, so so he did he he you know he did uh, transgress through uh, uh, ownerships like I did, and and took his knowledge with him, and and was quite successful uh, in doing that. So yeah, I think um, I think I think you know there are folks that uh, that work with me and and for me that uh, moved on and and uh, you know were were. Uh, very accomplished uh, in other places as a result of what they got to learn at the Lawrenceburg Distillery. So, yeah, that's quite a legacy. That's indeed quite a legacy, and and uh, you have to be like the old coach, sort of, and uh, happy to see see you guys out there doing that. And 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 you're still doing new things. And it, it really, uh, I guess, in one way, the sad part is. It, that, that Seagram training that I continue to talk about, I am the last master distiller to have gone through their program. So wow. yeah, uh, it's my, it's going to be my job to pass that along to the folks at old elk. Uh, uh, so that, you know, a lot of what I've learned uh, can, can continue to be used to, uh, you know, produce world-class quality whiskeys. So but yeah, it's uh, it's kind of a a passing of the torch, if you will. A, a lot of you know Larry Ebersold's a big name in the business. He's the master distiller that trained me, and uh, Jack Pileski was a, a big name in the business prior to Larry, and that's the master distiller that trained Larry. So it, it's all information and knowledge and training that was passed down from generation to generation, which is what makes it so special. It's, you, you can read all the books in the world, but until you take that knowledge and go to the trenches, uh, you, you don't really earn your title until you've, until you've been in the trenches for many, many years and, and have to, you know, have your bad days and then figure out what's going wrong so you can fix it fast uh, and get things back on track to making, uh, you know, high quality whiskeys. Uh, anybody can make whiskey, but uh, making high quality whiskey is is uh, a whole different level. So, well, speaking of high quality whiskey, <laughs> just so happens we're we're looking at a bunch of it, and you've taken all that knowledge and experience, and you've you've come out with this new brand, this this old elk brand that bears your name on every bottle, and 
I mean, it's just, as I said earlier, it's a brand that, you know, as whiskey enthusiasts, we saw, and all of a sudden it just took over because everyone realized this, this was great quality whiskey. It's, it's affordable whiskey, which nowadays is, is one of the most difficult things for whiskey enthusiasts is getting quality whiskey for a fair price. But these old elk bottles we have today, we just got to dive into. And we have three exceptional offerings here, but where should we start? What do you think is the best place for us to, to kick this off? Well, I, I would say, uh, you know, just to dive into the old elk story a little bit before we do that. I mean, it, it, that was a, um, that was, uh, has really become, uh, is it, going to be my legacy. Uh, old, old, old elk, as much as I've done over the last 43 years, old elk is, is going to be my legacy. And I met old elk probably, uh, well, it's probably eight or nine years ago. Now I, I met him when I was still master distiller in Lawrenceburg, uh, under LDI. And, uh, they, they actually, uh, came to meet me at the facility in Lawrenceburg to talk about, uh, making whiskeys, uh, for old elk because they were interested in getting into the, into the bourbon business. Uh, but what's so unique about the old elk story is that, that when they came to the plant, uh, they weren't really interested in the five, four or five or six staple mash bills that we were producing for everybody else. Uh, they wanted custom mash bills. And uh, at that time, I was uh, probably 35 years into my career. And uh, literally, uh, that became my first opportunity to start crafting custom mash bills from the ground up unrestricted relative to the cost of the mash bill. And the very first mash bill that they tasked me with was the old elk flagship bourbon. Uh, and they gave me two words to work with. It was a really short meeting. They said, so, so we want a custom mash bill and we want the product to be smooth and easy. That was it. Uh, and, and there were no, there were no restrictions on, on cost or anything like that. And it's, it's become a standing joke between uh, myself and our accounting, our accountants at Old Elk because it's, it will wind up being an incredibly expensive mash bill. But, uh, but anyway, uh, to achieve that, uh, the, those two words that they gave me to work with, uh, I knew uh, in the front of my mind, I knew I had to get the malted barley content way up in the mash bill to bring uh, you know, smooth and uh, easy characteristics. Uh, in the back of my mind, I also knew that, uh, you know, up to that point in my career, all of the other mash bills that I produced always had some degree of rye in it for that really nice spice characteristic. And I really wanted that to be part of the old elk custom mash bill. So really from that point, it, it sort of became reverse math. I took uh, the corn content down to the minimum for bourbon, which is 51%, uh, to get that spice characteristic from the rye to carry over into the distillate, uh, experience told me it takes a minimum of 15% rye in the mash bill to get that. And uh, literally, it was uh, uh, total reverse math from there. I factored in 51% corn, 15% rye, and that left me room for 34% malted barley, in the old elk flagship bourbon mash bill. So that was the first mash bill that I produced for him. Uh, I subsequently produced about, uh, I don't know, up, upwards of 9,000 barrels of that product for him while I was 
still there at Lawrenceburg, which is uh, inventory that we continue to work off of today. When was that? Well, that would have been uh, probably 2012 to 2013. It would have been right in that transition. I'd met uh, Old Elk early in 2012. And, you know, discussion started. And then uh, uh, in the period of 2012 to 2013 is when I started producing some of their products. Uh, had you pushed anything or had anyone else pushed anything that far with the um, malted barley? No. We, before? Uh, frankly speaking, uh, you know, my experience at Lawrenceburg was always under the commercial umbrella. I mean, Seagram's was you know, obviously a, a very big company and commercial, uh, Pernod and, uh, was, you know, similar, they were commercial. So, you know, every year we did, you know, not only did we have to go out and produce the world-class quality whiskeys, but we also had to do budgets every year and the company every year always, you know, came to us and said, well, we want you to continue to, uh, you know, make world-class quality whiskey products. But we want you to do it cheaper this year. So, uh, you know, I, <laughs> yeah. just to, just to give you a real quick frame of reference, when I talked about, uh, you know, the cost of the old elk bourbon mash bill, uh, corn is is the most plentiful uh, cereal grain out there, and it's also the highest starch content. So, uh, corn probably runs in the neighborhood of four to five dollars a bushel. In the starch contents uh, in the neighborhood of 70% plus, uh, which is the only part of that grain that's, that is fermentable and alcohol. So, so corn has the highest starch content of all the cereal grains, and it's the cheapest. Uh, if you step up to rye, the next grain in that mash bill, you're probably looking at uh, 8 to $10 a bushel, and the starch content is in the neighborhood of 60%. So you're going to get less proof gallons per bushel because the starch content's lower and you're going to pay nearly double or more double. Well, then you step it up to the malted barley. Now you're talking probably $25 a bushel. And again, the starch content is lower than corn. So you're going to get less proof gallons per bushel and it's going to cost you maybe six times more. So that's just a, a reference relative to, you know, what the cereal grains costs that go into certain mash bills and you know uh and anyway in the, in the commercial arena then you know what we always did was we would always try to cut that malted barley back to the absolute minimum and still be able to produce those whiskeys uh that was always the low-hanging fruit so uh you know i would say to this day uh unless you're a specialty distiller everybody for the most part, is is trying to squeeze back on the amount of malted barley in their mash bills rather than expand it uh, to 34% yeah, back like in, we did it all well. <clears throat> yeah, and at the time that you did that, I think the standard was like 5%. Yeah, no more than probably 10. Uh, I'd, I'd say yeah. on average, probably 5 to 8% in, in whiskey, for a whiskey, yeah. We're beginning to see a few more people push it a little bit more now. Yeah. And, uh, for the very reasons you're, you're speaking. Absolutely. So, so yeah, I, I would say if we're going to uh, do our tasting, I would start with the uh, old up uh, smooth and easy uh, flagship bourbon first. 
Well, that just happens to be what we just <laughs> What a coincidence. And that in the bottle that's offered at 88 proof. That was uh, very intentional on my part. I, I wanted the proof to be high enough to be classified in the premium category, but I really didn't want the proof so high that it started interfering with the smooth and easy characteristics that uh, that our owners, uh, Kurt and Nancy Richardson, asked me to produce for them. So uh, on the shelf, it's offered at 88 proof, but we do have a, a very significant single barrel program uh, also where uh, it's offered at cast strength. Oh, really? Well, you know, it's it's just so amazing because you say your directions were smooth and easy. If I had to pick two words to describe this whiskey, it would be smooth and easy. <laughs> well, thank you. And well, and, and you know, sometimes words like smooth and easy almost for some people, particularly, you know, in the world of complex bourbon reviews where you have to write, you know, a paragraph of of the nose and the palate, people say, you know, that's a there's almost a negative connotation there. Oh, yeah, they give you shit about it every, every all the time. Yeah. yeah. But I mean don't you want whiskey to be smooth and easy when you when it comes down to it? Hundred percent. Well, I mean, yeah, it doesn't. Uh, that doesn't mean there's not flavor. That doesn't mean there's not complexity. Right. It just means when you're done drinking it, you look back on it and you say, "Wow, that was that was smooth and easy," and I liked yeah. it. Um, I don't think there needs to be anything more than that. I'll be, I'll be, uh, you know, hundred percent frank with you guys. Uh, you know, my training. Uh, in the organoleptic arena that, that I received from Seagram's was really more about evaluating the white disc look before it went into the barrel. And as such, we were looking for uh, a whole array of quality defects uh, that, that uh, you know, through experience, we knew would either age out or wouldn't age out. But at the end of the day, uh, the thing that made Seagram's really unique from the quality perspective is that if a, if a product didn't make the cut on the quality ratings as a white distillate, it would never go into a barrel. Uh, it would, be, it would re, be repurposed into vodka. So at that facility, we had, we had the ability, we produced a lot of vodka besides uh, some really nice bourbon whiskeys. And if a, if a bourbon whiskey on a given day didn't match up to the quality standards. It, it got repurposed uh, and never went into a barrel. So we did it uh, primarily by uh, sensory, sensory and organoleptic. Uh, we did do, uh, we did do uh, a lot of uh, uh, very technical scientific uh, uh, QC analysis on, on all the fermenters. So we did, uh, HPLC, which is high pressure liquid chromatograph on all the drop fermenters. So we, we would be able to see all the components that were created in the fermenter through that uh, QC analysis test. And then all the distillates went through a, a gas chromatograph analysis. But uh, we usually use that data as backup to what our noses told us uh, beforehand. Uh, we had our quality panels were probably uh, probably six to eight, eight folks, uh, and we would evaluate uh, all our prior days distillates, uh, usually between nine and 10 o'clock in the morning. So we would, that was usually one of the first things we did before we went out and had 
a lunch that would interfere with our sensory capabilities and, and all that kind of thing. But, uh, but you, we always had panels big enough because as you know, pallets are like fingerprints. Uh, everybody has them and they're all different. So even on a quality panel, uh, you know, some folks will pick out what we were looking for defects. We, we, we were trained, we trained ourselves to look for defects and, you know, certain people could see certain defects better than others. So if you, if you had a, a six or eight person panel, uh, it's likely that you had enough people on there that uh, would see all of the uh, severe defects that we were really looking for to make sure that, uh, you know, a, a poor quality product never, never went into a barrel. So, so take us back to the day you first ran this uh, mash bill for the old elk through the distillery and, uh, and what your reaction was when you when, when you got a chance to test and taste that, and what was the re- reaction of the uh, the guys that said we want something that's smooth and easy? Well, it it uh, it, it it really it was it wrapped really well because it went really easy. I mean, we we put the mash bill together, we produced it, and we distilled it, and it it you know the white distillate came out. Uh, really clean relative to any potential quality defects. Uh, the fermentation went really well. Uh, sometimes if you get high malted barley content, you can get into foaming, which is detrimental to quality. Uh, we did not run into that. Uh, the fermenters uh, didn't overheat. Sometimes uh, when you start adjusting cereal grains in a mash bill, the first First couple rounds is like trial and error to figure out what the parameters are, but uh, you know, for the most part, we I was able to leverage all of what I learned through Seagrams when we had all different mash bills under Seagrams. So we we pretty much had a, a really good idea of where the parameters needed to be from the get go, and then uh, you know when the distal it came across it. Uh, you know, obviously it wasn't smooth and easy because it hadn't been in a barrel yet, but it, it was very clean. Uh, there were absolutely no quality defects in it. Uh, and, you know, as such, uh, you know, when you put it into a barrel that uh, it, it's going to make that product better. Uh, one of the things I always say is that uh, uh, a barrel will make good whiskey better, but a barrel will not make bad whiskey good. So, what goes in has to be good uh, so that it's better when it comes out. Uh, but, but anyway, it's, it was really uh, more leveraging what I had learned over the 35 years uh, in my career up to that point. And, you know, you, you, you can't predict what a product's going to look like descriptively five years, four, four years down the road, five years down the road. But uh, what you can, what you can predict is that if it's, a high quality white disc like went into that barrel that it's going to come out and it's going to be pretty special when it's done. And that, that's really what happened, uh, you know, along the way with all the old products that, that we wound up producing. Well, the thing I love about this mash bill is, you know, that, that heightened malted barley content, which in the past year or two, I've really become such a fan of malted barley. Oh, I really just, I guess, underappreciated that grain for everything it adds to a whiskey. But I also appreciate that you took that corn content down and 
and kept that rye content. I always, in my personal taste, 15% rye or in that range is kind of all the whiskeys I love mm-hmm. because you still get that, that rye character, that spice to come through. And, and you definitely get that with this for me, particularly on the finish, I get more of that spicy rye character that I just really appreciate in a whiskey. And a lot of companies, I feel like maybe they'll up their barley, but they'll lower their rye to keep that corn high. Maybe it's an economic choice. Maybe it's any number of other reasons, but that's something I really appreciated about this product. And that, that balance you struck with those grains was, was really nice. Yeah. And yeah, I'll be frank with you again. I mean, I, I, because I had never produced custom ash bills up to that point. I mean, I, there was, there was uh, a big learning curve for me as well. And, and one of the things that, that I think is really kind of fun or unique is it by, and not only in the old elk bourbon mash bill, but in our weeded bourbon and our wheat whiskey mash bills by, by lowering the corn content or removing the corn content, uh, it really uh, showed me that you you get to see other congeners that that are in those you know in the products that they just happen to be masked by the high corn content of of mash bills. So uh, as we lowered the corn, uh, we started to see things that that really I hadn't seen before relative to descriptors and 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 that type of thing. And uh, you know the wheated bourbon and the wheat whiskey are or if, if you've ever had a chance to check them out, um, it's, it's really kind of fun to, to see things that maybe you haven't seen before because corn in a mash bill really brings the robust characteristics of bourbon to the table. So, you know, a lot of us, you know, a lot of us are familiar with the 65, 75% corn content bourbon mash bills and they're, they're robust and they bring a lot of flavor and a lot of fusel oil uh components to the table uh, but when you get high corn contents like that those robust characteristics have a tendency to hide or mask um you know some of the more delicate or different type of congeners that are in there you just can't see them through uh you know the robust characteristics that corn brings so uh, for me uh you know, it was it was fun to see, and it was not planned on my part by any stretch of the imagination. But uh, you know, it it was a, a bonus that I hadn't expected. But we got to see, you know, uh, flavors and and some sensory notes that that maybe you're not used to seeing, and it, it, they be, they became exposed because of the lower no corn content in mash bills. But you know, back in the day. I was doing a tasting up there in Louisville with Willie Pratt uh, at, at Michter's mm-hmm. and, and he had the straight whiskey and I think sour mash. And he, and he, he told me at the time, he said, I really like working with those because I'm not, I, I don't have to stick with the formula. You know, I don't have to have 51% of anything. Yeah. And that was the, the extent of the conversation. He didn't go into what was in it. Yeah. But it, it gave he felt it gave him the freedom to uh, experiment and, and and make whiskey the way he wanted it to taste versus meeting yeah, some yeah. TTB guidelines. Yeah. And they obviously do a really good job down there. So yeah, hats off. Yeah. So yeah. Greg, when you lower the corn content, as you mentioned, corn being the highest starch content of the, of the cereal grains, and you reduce that grain, 
how does that change your fermentation process or does it change it? I guess. Well, it, it, uh, it really doesn't change it, uh, a lot, uh, until you get, uh, probably the two hardest mash bills that I've ever had to produce. It's a 95% rye whiskey, 5% malt mash bill that, you know, we made famous in Lawrenceburg. Uh, that, that, uh, from a technical aspect is probably the hardest mash bill to produce, uh, uh, Rye, uh, because of the nature of the grain, has <clears throat> other components in it that uh, that uh, malted barley and corn don't. So it makes for a really viscous kind of slimy, snotty type mash, and it's very uh, susceptible to foaming, which is detrimental to quality. Uh, and I will say that everything that we learned at Seagram's over you know my career uh, on how to how to produce that mash bill and, and, and wind up with a quality, world-class quality uh, product at the end of the, every day. Uh, fortunately, everything we learned about being able to do that with that rye whiskey, whiskey mash bill transferred to that uh, 95% wheat whiskey, 5% malt whiskey mash bill that, that we use for our wheat, the old elk wheat whiskey. But uh, foaming is always a big deal when you, when you, when you take corn down, corn oil, <clears throat> corn has a lot of oil or germ in it, uh, is a nature of the product. And that oil actually uh, acts as an antifoam. So when you start reducing corn way down and start taking that rye and maybe malted barley way up uh, to the opposite ends of the spectrum, uh, the, the less amounts of those uh, corn oils you have because of the corn uh, really uh, starts lending itself to uh, a propensity to foam. And unless you can control that foam by using some secondary enzymes or surfactants, uh, you know, you, you have to use things like that to eliminate the foam uh, so that it doesn't uh, negatively impact your fermentation. Interesting. And are these things happening in the fermenter? Yes. Yeah. One of the things uh, maybe is not commonly known, but, uh, you know, the distillation part of, of making whiskeys is really, uh, really the simple part of the process. It's, it's not, it's not highly technical because what you're doing at the proofs that you distill at generally 130 to 140, all you're doing is transferring all the flavor components, good or bad from the fermenter to the bottle. You're not, you're not doing any fractional distillation. You're not separating components so much. Uh, you know, folks do do heads and tails cuts. Uh, you know, and that. You know, you know. My experience uh, through Seagram's was that we never did heads or tails cuts. Uh, if 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 you do, uh, you know, if, if you do a really good job on the fermentation, you don't necessarily have to do heads and tails cuts. So, uh, you know, that's it. That's you know that's that's just the way it was uh, you know under what I learned. But you know I'm not I'm not saying that heads and tails cuts are good or bad or indifferent. But uh, I will say that if you have a very tight control over uh, your fermenters, that uh, you're less likely to have to sort of try to make heads and tails cuts to remove some of the components that were made excessively through 
maybe less um, less than uh, good fermentation, I guess. Uh, but anyway, so I, um, that, that's an amazing an amazing revelation to me. I, I, every every distillery I've been in and walking around the fermentation tanks, there's always a, a little bit of foam on the top. There is, uh, but it, uh, just in, just to give you an example, I mean, early on in my career when we were producing those ninety five percent rye fermenters, we left yeah. we left four foot of of uh, four feet, 48 inches, 48 dry inches on, on no. top of the set fermenter to, uh, wow. to keep the foam from running over the side of the no. fermenter. And, <laughs> and as, as we learn more and more about how to deal with that and, and using other enzymes to help reduce that, we wound up from four feet to 12, our traditional 12 inches. So and you're always going to get a little bit of foam, but uh, you know, I might be getting a little too technical here, but uh, no, that's okay. Go. We always had open top fermenters uh, for our whiskeys in Lawrenceburg, and of a bushel of grain, a third of a bushel winds up being CO two gas. A third of it will become alcohol, and a third of it will become cattle feed. But you actually rely on a CO two blanket on top of the fermenter to protect it from uh, air. It's like an anaerobic fermentation. So anytime you get severe foaming, you're actually pulling air into your fermenter. You've disturbed that CO2 cap and you start pulling air into the fermenter and that changes that whole metabolic pathway of that Emden-Meyerhoff uh, pathway. And it, it'll start making the yeast create more of some of the congeners you want or overload, if you will, uh, aldehydes, esters, and it's amazing. Like this is come, this, this is coming from a 23-year-old guy being interviewed at the University of Cincinnati saying, hey, hey you want to come up here and make some whiskey? Yeah, it makes me wish I paid better attention to chemistry class. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, the, for me, that was all on the job. I had zero microbiology or uh, biology <laughs> yeah. in any of the courses that I took, uh, you know, through high school wow. and in engineering. So that was really all a big part of, of what I was taught by the Seagram uh, company. That's wow. wonderful. That now, now I, by the way, I love the straight bourbon. It's yeah, really good, I mean, and it is smooth, smooth and, and easy. And I and I think whatever whatever that malt at at that rate is doing it. It really does level it out on the tongue. I mean, I'm just not getting overpowered by what mm -hmm. I typically get overpowered by in in many bourbons. Yeah, that something jumps out, but this this one is uh, so nice and uh, smooth. And for all of you geeks out there who like to knock that word on the internet, uh, you kiss my butt. You know, this is <laughs> this is really good stuff. That's the way to do it. Well, so I want to I want to push us into this next one because I made the mistake of nosing this, yeah. and I, I was just it was game over from there. Um, this this is a newer one to our collection, and this is actually the Sour Mash Reserve. This is batch number three. But Greg, what's the what's the concept behind Sour Mash Reserve? All right, so uh, this is another uh, really great old elk story. So. Uh, before I joined Old Elk full-time, uh, 
they actually took the mash bill that the flagship pulled up bourbon mash bill that I crafted for them in Lawrenceburg. And they actually took that same mash bill to two different uh, craft distilleries. Uh, they took they took the mash bill to a, uh, a distillery in Aspen and had them produce uh, limited runs of the same mash bill. And they did the same thing at a, uh, in a New York uh, craft distillery. Uh, same mash bill, but, uh, you know, it was a different master distiller. So uh, to, to me, it's, it's like an extension of a, uh, a Seagram experiment from many, many, many years ago. Uh, Seagram's had one of the most progressive research and development uh, departments in the business, bar none, for over 50 years. And uh, as a business protection plan, uh, uh, again, earlier I'd said that Lawrenceburg was really built to produce Seven Crown uh, uh, blend, period. Uh, but as such, you know, they had to produce uh, a lot of bourbon bourbon whiskeys and rye whiskeys were part of those part of that blend. But anyway, as a business protection plan, that that research and development department decided that they were going to send uh, all the Lawrenceburg water, all the Lawrenceburg grain, uh, all the Lawrenceburg yeast to a, uh, a another distillery they had in Maryland to try to reproduce uh, uh, century and quality wise. Uh, the products that we were making in Lawrenceburg in the event that we had a fire or something that severely disabled the, the distillery from producing Seven Crown, they, they needed to be able to move that production to a different distillery. And, uh, you know, they went the extent of, of shipping water, grain, uh, yeast. Uh, almost all the equipment was identical from one distillery to the other in the Seagram uh, distilleries. But anyway, uh, long story short, what they found out was that uh, as much as they tried to make the very same product at different distilleries, they couldn't do it. And it's because of the uh, 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 indigenous uh, bacteria that that lives in all different areas of the country. Uh, they call it flora fauna, but it, really at, at the end of the day, it's airborne bacteria that exist everywhere and because of the different climates you know uh certain bacterias and lactic and acetic which you fight every day in in the distillery business or even bacteria uh you know that the climates have an impact on on your fermenters uh in different parts of the country so uh where i'm going with this is that the the, the fact that Old Elk took that same ash bill to three different distilleries uh, is, is sort of uh, proof in the pudding uh, as to what Seagram's tried uh, to do maybe 50 years ago at this point. And as, as you'll find it, uh, we do like 30, 30 barrel batches of this sour mash uh, that was produced in, in New York. Uh, so it was a different yeast than I used in Lawrenceburg. Uh, his sour mash techniques were different than what I used in Lawrenceburg, but the mash bill was the same. And the, you know, the cooking process and fermentation process was, was pretty much the same. But what you see from batch to batch, and, you know, 30, bat, 30 barrels, so it's, it's a small batch uh, product. 
but what you'll see is that every every batch is going to be different from the other one, and a lot of that has to do with with sort of that serum experiment that they that they did maybe fifty years ago. You just but anyway, it's uh, all our products at Old Elk are sour mash. Uh, you know, it, almost everybody in the industry does a sour mash. I don't know if you're familiar with that term or what what it really means, but at the end of the day, sour mash means that you're reducing the pH of your mash from nearly uh, neutral, which is seven on, on the pH scale, and you purposely add acid to your mash to get the pH uh, usually to five or below. And what that does is retard bacteria growth. And it favors it favors the living conditions for the yeast and disfavors the living conditions uh, for the naturally occurring uh, airborne bacteria like lactic acid and acetic acid, which uh, the minute you turn that starch in your grains into sugar, it becomes a competition between uh, bacteria turn that sugar into acids or the yeast to turn that sugar into alcohol. So sour mash is is really primarily intended to retard bacteria growth. Uh, But uh, the methods that they were using in the New York distillery uh, were different than what we were using in Lawrenceburg, which has an impact uh, obviously on, on the uh, congener profile. And uh, you know, the fact that they're 30 barrel blends uh, also gets gives you a uh, somewhat of a relative reference as to variation from you know maybe uh, something produced in December to something produced in June to something produced in the fall relative to uh, you know uh, climate changes. So it's it's kind of a it's it's a fun it's a fun product. It's you know from a quality perspective, it's very good, but. Uh, you'll definitely get variation from one batch to the other. Uh, do, you, do you have any uh, mash bill um, restrictions, like the fifty-one percent of anything on, on a sour mash? Well, it's no. Again, it's it's the same mash bill that uh, is used in the old elk uh, bourbon whiskey. So it's fifty-one percent corn. It was fifteen percent rye, and the thirty-four percent malted barley. So they took basically took that identical mash bill produced at three different distilleries and wound up with literally three different products, uh, subtly, not dynamically so much, but. Well, you can definitely tell it's the same mash bill. (laughs) Um, I definitely, that malted barley stands out, but whoever did the the distillation here, I think did a wonderful job. Uh, I think it's, it's, I think you're talking to it. Well, (laughs) But I think the other thing I like about this, um, you know, maybe it's this is, wouldn't be as popular to uh, newer whiskey drinkers, but I love that that increase in proof. This this one's at 105 proof compared to the yeah. 88 we just tasted. And I think that personally, I think that proof works really well with this match mm-hmm. bill. Um, it drinks like a big, bold, rich whiskey. Uh, I actually, I would have thought it was higher than 105, if I'm being honest. And I, I like high proof. I like that, that those big flavors. And I get that with this. And I saw that 105 and it kind of blew me away that it was actually that low compared to how this packs a punch of flavor. In yeah. It. Um, but it's wonderful. I, I, I find myself 
saying this about the whiskeys I enjoy and uh, that when I can pick up a glass of whiskey and I'm not getting any off-putting character in it, mm-hmm. I, I'm going to enjoy that whiskey. And, and I think that's where you, what you were talking about earlier about not having those off-putting qualities. They're just not there. And when they're not there, you've got a, you've got a premium good tasting yeah. bourbon or is it bourbon? This, this, yep. is, this is straight. Bourbon. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a and that's a very interesting story, and it's amazing to see how, you know, just a, a geographic change and a, a slight increase of, in proof. While they are definitely similar, mm-hmm. um, you, you can those those distinct characteristics are highlighted. Um, I, I and like you said, John, I love this. Yeah, pour. I mean, this is wonderful, and I can't tell you how many I've picked up, and I'm 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 tasting things that I can describe, uh, but really shouldn't be in whiskey. (laughs) You know, know, a lot of them, as a matter of fact, and you you, you get that, you know, your, your, your aftertaste is uh, hay or something like that. And, And that's typical in a lot of the whiskeys out there. It's not here. Yeah. I'm glad we, uh, have this bottle because that that's going to go fast i think that might not leave the porch tonight <laughs> there might be a problem i don't know our next one is uh one that i've been uh yeah we tipping my hat to uh quite a bit here lately since you found me one and not to ruin the uh the, the finale here but we've been saving one bottle for the end because i think with something i don't see with john a lot when we we got this bottle he, his eyes just turned into little hearts when he tasted this. <laughs> he was so excited. And, and John does a very good job of containing himself and his excitement. But this was one he just jumped out for. I could tell instantly he loved it. And he just talked about it for days after we tasted it the first time. Um, and we were just so fortunate to get these bottles. And, of course, I'm referring to, I think, which is one of your newest releases, which is the infinity blend from 2021 the, the first year i think y'all did this yes, right yeah yeah and this is i gotta finish up my last little sip here that that sour mash but well and i heard about it uh when greg was on with ron maloney from julio's and uh julio's i mean ron's been one of the great pickers forever as far as uh you know a guy with a great palate and, and uh uh, I've had the pleasure of working with him through uh, an organization that I was in as well. And you were on with him shortly and, and you brought the infinity out at that time. Yeah. And, uh, and Ron said, guys, if you can find it, you need to get it. And, uh, and he was, he was spot on. He was absolutely right. Yeah. So this, this has been uh, another uh, another really fun project and it's it's going to be a, a continuing project so I'm already uh, reaching out to folks trying to source uh, some vintage whiskeys for the 2022 version uh, and uh, well if I can find what I'm after uh, uh, you know I, I'd like to say I, I hope to raise the bar every year but uh, wow. I will say the 2021 is is probably my best uh, blending work to date, uh, and the story 
course, everybody knows sort of the story behind Infinity Blends where, you know, you take some of the prior year and it goes into the next year, but the, you know, the blend can be entirely different, uh, you know, next year from what it is this year. But, <clears throat> you know, the storyline with this one was really about legacy and heritage. Um, uh, you know, the legacy part was really uh, somewhat of a tribute to my 43 years in the business. And the, the heritage part wound up being, uh, you know, the heritage of Colorado whiskey married with uh, uh, two vintage uh, Kentucky bourbon, Kentucky bourbon whiskeys. Uh, and uh, so we had uh, we had uh, some 12 year old Kentucky bourbon from uh, a distillery and they had uh, 11 year old Kentucky bourbon from another distillery. That, uh, that I was able to utilize and, and uh, actually married it up with the six-year-old old bourbon. So, uh, the, you know, I went through uh, several iterations of different blends, but we arrived at the 60% old elk uh, bourbon, 24% uh, of the 12-year-old uh, Kentucky whiskey and 16% uh, of the 11-year-old uh, and uh, I'll be true. I'll be truthful. Uh, when I when I formulated the five or six different uh, blend ratios that, that I come up with, uh, the one that I thought <clears throat> was going to be the home run uh, wound up not being the home run. So uh, it, it's it's really interesting when when you when you start doing blending, even you know even at home by yourself, uh, you'll find that. You know, the ones that you think uh, based on a criteria of, of the components that you're working with. And, and, you know, you try to predict what that might look like when you're done. But uh, I, I went through all the different uh, iterations blind. And it's like every time I just came to the same glass and it was it was not the one that I thought was going to be the the home run uh, of the five or six. and. Uh, it's, 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 it, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. It's just when you see it, you know it. And uh, that's really the way it, that uh, it wound up with this particular blend. I, I went through uh, the iterations blind and it's like, man, that's, that's the one. And uh, so, so you started off with uh, more than three more or no, it was the three. same components, the same three components, but I just adjusted yeah. the ratios, uh, you know, in, in different iterations and, uh, you know, I really thought that uh, the higher percentages of the 11 and 12 year old was was really going to be a showstopper. And it, it didn't the, the way they marry up. It just didn't wind up being the case. Um, well, one thing I appreciate about this bottle, and there are many things, but because of the way you ended up doing the ratio and, and keeping that majority old elk distillate that six year old you you kept i think a very similar profile to your old elk bourbon mash bill and that that flavor but you you combined it with some older whiskey to just elevate it to where i mean when i tasted this i said man this, this tastes like a 12 13 year old whiskey but it's still it's almost like you found a way to age old elk bourbon 12 or 13 years just by blending it properly. Yeah, it, uh, I mean, because it, it really does taste like the same whiskey, but it's, it's just got that 
Well, you get Extra the oak. Tour. You get yeah, the you oak get that oak experience yeah. and, and all the, the wonderful flavors oak can bring to the table. And I mean, really, to me, this tastes like what I imagine old elk distillate will taste like when it hits like 12 years. Yeah, no, I think I think what you say is uh, very true. And, you know, our our some of our inventory is getting up uh, in the eight-year-old range now. So, you know, going forward, we're probably going to get to see some of those uh, more vintage uh old elk products stand on their own uh which is going to be a lot of fun too so yeah we're all looking forward to that i think not that we haven't loved the five and six year you know some of the the other variations y'all are putting out i know there are a lot of them but i really i'm hoping i can save a little of this bottle and maybe when that that distillate hits 12 years we could do it side by side and and kind of see because i just have a feeling you just somehow were able to blend age into your own whiskey, which is kind of amazing. I mean, you just found a way to take this great distillate and just elevate it in, in a way that only age can. And, and I mean, that's, it's an amazing product. It, it's uh, I'm really proud of it. I have to say it. Uh, like I said, when well, I, I know John is being quiet. Well, I, you know what I'm thinking here is what you what you've managed to do is you've managed to introduce a higher level of malted barley into those those Kentucky bourbons that you're talking about, which already had some in it to begin with. So, so I, I think I am beginning to be such a fan of. Uh, of the higher uh, percentage of malted barley in, in bourbons. And, and it started with uh, uh, an affinity for old Forrester. And then I, I think, you know, some of the other guys were beginning to pick up, pick it up a little bit in terms of the percentages. And now I'm seeing a, a number of these um, uh, new guys on the block who are making real good whiskey, by the way, uh, and I'm beginning to see them uh, experiment with 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 higher degrees of 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 the barley and the malted barley, and you've taken it to a different level. But you you seem to have known intuitively, instinctively uh, that that's what you needed to know or needed to do, so to speak. Yeah. Again, like I said, as we talked earlier, when when they <clears throat> told me they wanted it to be smooth and easy. Uh, I, I I knew that that getting malted barley content way up was the way to go. So, but you'd never done it before, no, had uh, you? No, it was. I, I leveraged a lot of experience, obviously. Uh, you know, yeah, you know, I think so. Thirty-five years in at that point, so I, you know, <laughs> I had the good fortune of of you know a lot of people around me and uh, you know a, a wealth of knowledge around me relative to. Uh, you know, all the experiments and data that uh, Seagram's collected over a 50-year period. So, uh, you know, all of that you leverage when when you try something new. Did the bookkeepers know you were were, were doing it before you did it? Oh, no. They, it's funny. <laughs> uh, I, I did a, I did a, we, we have a, uh, uh, the reserve at Old Elk is our tasting room in Fort Collins. It's, it's a really uh, a wonderful facility, but Anyway, when we first launched uh, Old Elk Bourbon in, uh, I think, the end of 2017, I did an event there, and uh, our uh, the company 
controller and accountants were in attendance. And, and I started talking about, I gave them the, the same speech I gave you guys about the mash bill and the cost of the different grains. And I could see the accountant's eyeball just all yeah. over yeah. it. <laughs> looked like ping pong balls. It, it dawned on him for the first time. It was an incredibly expensive mash bill. <laughs> and to this day, it's, it's still a standing, not joke, but, uh, uh, no, they're happy now, aren't there's they? Always, it's uh, always a bone of contention between <laughs> cutting somebody <laughs> loose with no ties and, <laughs> and, and the accountants uh, have, to, have to try to figure out how to deal with it. But anyway, it's all, it was all good sport. Well, it all worked out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great expression <laughs> of, uh, of, of bourbon. And, uh, and I'm telling you, it's been sitting... I go out to my garage and smoke my cigars and drink my whiskey, and uh, and and that's the bottle that's sitting on my desk yeah. right now. As a matter of fact, I brought it in in case Luke forgot his. Oh uh, come on, you know better. I don't forget whiskey. <laughs> but, it, but it is just spectacular, and and I'll tell you what: on the nose, that cherry just jumps right out at me. I I don't know about you. Yeah, yeah, it's it's. But like you said, that 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 oak that that older Kentucky bourbon brings to it, it just it takes a good distillate, and it just adds those those additional layers to it, and it's just such a a complex and, and bold spirit. And I mean, it dr- actually drinks below its proof, in my opinion, because this is what a hundred almost one hundred and fifteen yeah. proof for this. Oh, yeah i wouldn't have said it it drank like that yeah. um because it, it's still i guess that that malted barley base and that old elk distillate tames everything and and it's still exceptionally smooth yeah, for uh, for a big whiskey i mean 115 proof but you know it, it just drinks so smooth still but it just packs such a punch of flavor to it and it like John said, you know, try, we could probably sit here for a while and try to pick out something we don't like, but <laughs> why? that's no fun. Exactly. But well, I'll tell you what, Greg met you a rock star. Uh, and I, I, I go back in my own uh, barrel picking and kicking around uh, uh, bourbons uh, 15 years ago. And, and, and the thought at that particular time was, Who's making this stuff, you know? And uh and and the the very idea that we're sitting here chatting with you today is great. But I, I remember some of the smooth amblers and some of the other ones that uh had some damn, this is good whiskey, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was never theirs, it was yours. And uh, but but they recognized it too, and were serious enough about uh whiskey to uh to 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 go to the expense of putting it on the market. Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, my hat's off to those guys who did it. We've got one guy who comes to the porch quite often and he chases, um, he chases your whiskey wherever he can find really? it. Really? Yeah. Mean, oh yeah. He's ordered it from California, from Georgia, you name it. I mean, he's getting it from all over the place. And, um, and you hear about these guys that, you know, I love my wild turkey or I love my this or that or that or the other thing. Here's a guy that loves your whiskey. 
and and uh, and the fact of the matter is, a lot of us do, and because we've been tasting it all over the country and a lot of different labels and different areas of the shelf in the retail business, and the very fact that you're now working with the guys at Old Elk and have been working with them, going back to your 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 days in Indiana, as uh, boggles my mind. Uh, it's it's great to see you kind of break out of that that uh, uh, Indiana mold. Although you had a lot of freedom there, it sounds like. Yeah. Uh, but uh, to break out of that and say let's go make some whiskey, and it's great also to hear you say this is going to be my legacy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 It's been fun. I've, I've been very uh, very blessed with a great career and a lot of great opportunities and. Uh, Fortunate, made the best of them. So it's it's been it's been fun, and I hope it continues to be fun. I, I look forward to every day in the business because you never you never know at all. That's for sure. So, Greg, I got to ask you one final question. That I always do this, and I shouldn't, but I have this idea in my mind that when I we get huge guests on the show, I, I get them liquored up, and maybe that'll make you slip a little bit. <laughs> uh, so. Obviously, Old Elk, you know, is there's a lot of great expressions. You all have done a lot of experimentation and, and, and finishes and, and different mash bills. Is there anything you can tell us about knowing that, you know, you have to keep things under wraps? But is there anything coming out in the future that we can you can tell us about that we can be excited for that, that you are excited about? Or that, you know, we should really be keeping our eyes open for in the next couple months? Well, uh Great question, and I'll be happy to answer it. Uh, 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 besides the Infinity Blend that we're, you know, and uh, plan on continuing year after year after year, uh, we're also going to come out with uh, Master Distiller series. Uh, and uh, first quarter of this year, probably a little later, first quarter, but uh, we've got a four grain blend, uh, and I've got a double wheat blend uh, that's it's getting ready to be dumped very soon. So look forward to those two blends They're Again, they're master distiller series blends that uh, we've come out with. And uh, again, they're, they're, they're both incredibly good. So look forward to that. Oh, you've already, you've already tasted. Them. Oh, well, I've all, yeah, I put the blends together and uh, formalized what those blends are uh, probably uh three and four months ago uh so yeah they're they're uh they're on paper ready to go um and they're they're targeted to be on the shelf by the end of uh q1 this year so uh they they, they should be that they should be hitting production very 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 soon and uh i, I would say that if you like old elk products, it, uh, I would definitely recommend that you try those two products coming out as well. Uh, uh, the other thing that we have is that we're continuing our uh, cast finish program. Uh, so we've got uh, Armiac, Cognac, uh, Tawny Port, and uh, Sherry. Uh, we did uh, we did a round of those um, last year. Uh, we're on the second uh, second. Uh, fill on those barrels as we speak. Uh, those are uh, nice, uh, nice additions to our portfolio. And uh, we've actually uh, acquired some uh, rum casts that we're going to 
we've actually got some rum rum cast finished uh in progress and then right. uh, uh, we're looking to if we can find it uh looking at maybe some exotic woods as well for the future so uh we don't sit we don't sit still very long at old elk so. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's always fun to bring new things to the table and, and different uh, expressions of our products. So uh, that's, that's part of our DNA is to, you know, keep bringing the consumers world-class quality products. It's fun. Wow. Well, I'm begging you, don't go too far. <laughs> From what we've tasted tonight, yeah. it's pretty damn good whiskey. Yeah. Well, we're going to go ahead and edit out that that last couple minutes and no, save that hey, information for ourselves. <laughs> There's, 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 like, no, we've, Greg said there's nothing new coming out. Don't don't worry about it. Just just keep on. <laughs> Don and I will just be out there at every store trying to pile up all the stuff we can get. <laughs> well, Greg, we really cannot thank you enough for, for sharing your, your knowledge, your experience. I mean, your whiskey, everything you've done. I mean, this is this was enlightening to say the least. Um from a couple of whiskey nerds that probably shouldn't be doing any more than drinking it. You know, we just, we love learning and hearing from people like you because there's, there is just no substitution and to, to hear it from you and to hear about your process. I mean, it's, it's just always such a wonderful experience for us and everyone listening, you know, we get the feedback and people just tell us hearing from people like you is it just changes how they, they view whiskey and how they drink it. And and that's the kind of the goal of all of this, and, and just cannot thank you enough. Yeah, on behalf of all those distillers out there, those uh, those distilleries that uh, that got put on the map by saying I want to start a distillery, and 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 uh, and you got them off the ground yeah. in, in in a big big way. And on, on behalf of them, I know everybody wants to give you a tip of the hat for that. Appreciate that. It, uh, I tell you that the thanks and the appreciation uh, is a two-way street. Uh, it's always fun to hang out with folks like you and your group, and that are you know knowledgeable and passionate about the business. And uh, it's it's fun just to hang out and chat. I mean, how good does it get? You know, it's 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 great. It's it's uh, it's good for everybody, and uh, I totally uh, look forward to it, and totally enjoyed the company tonight. So thank you very much. Hopefully we'll uh, maybe in a year or so we'll be back with you and we'll hear about this yeah. new master class here. Let's not make it the last yeah, time. Yeah, we'll we'll make it we'll make it again happen again. That's for sure. Yeah, that's good whiskey. Yeah, it sure is. <laughs> well, thank you so much, gentlemen. Really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Enjoyed it. All right, thank Greg. You, thank you, and as always, cheers. Indeed. Yes. Hey everyone, thanks again for tuning in to the Capital City Bourbon Show. We have more great episodes planned for you in the future, so come back and join us on the porch. Cheers, y'all.